back in California, uh, I'd like to check a couple facts. Uh, that's uh, 5,000 lawyers in Christ around the country, uh, as well as in uh, foreign countries. And uh, I'd like to mention, in light of our prayer for Albania, thanks to uh, Sam Erickson and other Christian Legal Society members, uh, the entire judiciary uh, in Albania last year um, was provided with not only uh, the full counsel of God's word regarding justice and jurisprudence, but uh, thanks to the lawyers of the Christian Legal Society, we actually brought them their robes. Uh, they, are, uh, they don't realize it, but all of the jurists in Albania today, uh, as they come onto the bench, are wearing judicial robes, uh, which came to them uh, from the First Baptist Church of Seattle. Separation of church and state, right? Well, I'm here uh, to kick off the week, and uh, a little later I'm going to do something really unusual. If somebody could find a guitar for me uh, for a little later, that'd be great. But I'm here to talk to you about contemporary issues, uh, and in particular, uh, contemporary issues uh, that have to do with Christians and law. Just when you thought you were safe, a lawyer shows up on your platform. Just when you thought you heard everything, the lawyer says he's a Christian. A Christian lawyer? Give me a break. This is an oxymoron. We all know. We all know what the great what the great trinity of law is these days. And here it is. My topic. Whoa. Not my topic. Let's see if we can get that up there. Uh, let's see here. It's not easy to put these up here at Masters, as you know. I don't know. how. We, let's get that a little closer so we can all see together. There you go. There's the topic. Everyone thinks that lawyers are into money, sex, and power, the holy trinity of law. How sad. This is what I say. It is, it is interesting, though, as we look at contemporary issues, sometimes, sometimes Christians feel, oh, we just really, really can't get into this. I mean, this isn't really our ballgame. I mean, after all, I mean, we're the church. We're not the state. Uh, but things are getting kind of bad out there. I mean, we've got to take some, I don't know if you can see that. Bad news you want, your mom wants alimony. This is all. This is, of course, uh, I joke about the young the young guy that sued his parents for emancipation just about six or seven months ago. Well, wait a minute. That has something to do with a family, doesn't it? And the family is a, a biblical institution. Can we ignore law and ignore the family at the same time? How about truth, ethics? Those are things that are for the church. 
How important are ethics in today's society? If you don't do ethics, who will? It's like a sign that hangs in my, uh, my kitchen. If you don't chew your food, who will? There are some things that we just can't escape, dear brothers and sisters. And one of them is the law. But the church, the church is fooled around with perhaps preaching everything but justice. Here's a, here's a little cartoon where we can make fun of some of the things that we in the church are saying. Uh, this is, uh, these kind of scenes are near and dear to the people in places like Albania. Or how about Romania? I just heard the testimony of a lawyer who represented Laszlo Tokes, the pastor for whom all those candles were lit in Timisoara, the year of the Romanian Revolution. And little, little is heard about the lawyer who actually had the temerity to represent Laszlo Tokes. Frankly, I didn't even know he had a lawyer until the lawyer gave his testimony at the Christian Legal Society's National Conference just this past weekend. He got up and told a tale of he and his wife deciding to stand for uh, religious freedom in Romania, a very dangerous stance. They stood for the church all over Romania, and their, their walk took them to be legal counsel for Laszlo Tokes in the Reformed Church in Temesuera. When, the night before, Laszlo was arrested, the night before all those candles were lit and the Romanian Revolution began, the lawyer and his wife were both seized, their house burned, their files destroyed, and, the, and, and the, uh, the lawyer himself beaten to an inch of his life. I met him for the first time this past weekend. He's just finishing his third year at SMU, Southern Methodist University, uh, at 43 or 44, studying American law now, and he became a United States citizen just two weeks ago. He could tell us, I think, if he were here, about doing justice doing justice with the love of God. And that is what I would like to talk to you about this morning. The cartoon speaks a thousand words. My dear Christian friends, we do not need to be concerned about the rumor regarding the curtailment of freedom. Today I speak on the exciting topic, the gospel of prosperity and other blessings you can get God to give you. You can only stay on the sidelines so long when it comes to justice. Sooner or later, she comes for you. But is it true that we, like the prophet Habakkuk, often question the existence of justice in this world? Let me read from the headlines of Habakkuk's day, and let me ask you, doesn't this sound like us today? Habakkuk, Chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence, 
and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble or toil? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Aren't those your questions? Aren't those mine? Why all the violence? Why does the law appear powerless? Why are Christians so unable to participate in law these days? Why do we feel so put off? And why does it appear that the wicked surround right the righteous? And why, no matter where we see or where we hear uh, the television or the radio, does it seem like the judgments are perverse and yet they proceed? The good news is this isn't new. This has been going on for a long, long time. And it's very important for we Christians who live in a society that many are claiming to be an apostate society or a pre-Christian society, that we once again take some lessons from Daniel, from Nehemiah, from Esther, and from that great lawyer who got his butt kicked on his way to prosecute Christians Paul. The Word of God in so many ways commands the followers of Christ to be instruments of justice, evidencing by their faith, knowledge, and conduct the righteousness and love of God in an unjust world. Jesus Christ himself quite clearly affirmed this command to the lawyers and the law professors of his day. And as we begin this week of contemporary issues, I think it is incumbent upon me to lay the biblical foundation for your involvement in justice in your time. I'd like you to say something with me, because I have a feeling that you're not real clear about this. And I want you to you know, kind of loosen up. You know, you've been sitting here listening. I want you to loosen up and I want you to give yourself permission to say these words. It's okay to do justice with the love of God. Now say that with me. You've been sitting too long. Stand up. Write something, write something down in your life journal today. And this is what it should be. It's okay to do justice with the love of God. One time, real loud now. It's okay to do justice with the love of God. Yeah, it's okay. And guess who said it was okay? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said it was okay to do justice with the love of God. Please be seated. It was the classic time of a Christian facing the legal population of his era. 
Jesus Christ was about to be crucified. It wouldn't be long before the lawyers who were seeking to get evidence against him to crucify him would have made their case before the Sanhedrin. And after basically six or seven illegal trials, he would be crucified without any evidence to convict him against every procedural norm of the day. These were guys that had no idea about how to do justice for the love of God. They were Pharisees and Sadducees. They were the legal leaders of their day. And because of our hatred uh, and our feeling of injustice towards them, it has been very easy. It has been very easy for the Christians of our day to write off a whole class of people. And it is about those people I'd like us to speak today, too. It is an unreached people group. And it's a very important unreached people group. It is the 867,000 lawyers in this country who do not know Christ. But back to Jesus. Jesus was confronted, and as you know the story, he always had something nice to say to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, just as he has something nice to say to the lawyers of my day, and he has something nice to say to me. Woe to you, teachers of the law. You have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Did you catch it? You can practice the former. I mean the latter, I guess. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus himself, God, who gave us the law, who gave us truth. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through who? Boy. Grace and truth came through? Good. That's good. I'm glad we know that. Then, in, this, in another, another rendering of the same passage, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. And there's the formula. Doing justice with the love of God. It's a challenge to me, and it's a challenge to you. May I have a show of hands? How many people here think that they may be interested in the practice of law? How many people think they may be interested in the practice of law? Got some over here. Any over here? How many people are registered to vote? There you go. How many, how many people would be interested in preaching the gospel? Hmm, we're doing a little better. Well, all too often, Christians struggle in determining their proper response to God's call to do justice with the love of God, particularly in law and government, so-called public justice. Should we depart from the scene and concur with Shakespeare's butcher, who, if you've studied it in English literature, said, kill all the lawyers! You know, and for years, uh, I labored under the misapprehension that that was kind of a good thing. That that's what we needed to do until I read Shakespeare. And I found out that in that play, the butcher doesn't want the rule of law. He doesn't want peace. 
He doesn't want equity. He doesn't want justice. He wants anarchy. That's what he wants. And so if you want anarchy, you kill all the lawyers. But then there's the old saw, the oldest profession. And there was an argument between the engineer and the lawyer and the doctor. And the doctor said, of course, ours is the oldest profession. Because, well, I mean, God took the rib out of Adam and made Eve. We're talking surgery here. Medicine. And the engineer said, no, I'm sorry, guys. There's civil engineering way before, way before biology. I mean, we're talking in the beginning, God created the earth. I mean, we're talking civil engineering. I mean, he's moving lots of earth. We're talking civil engineering. And the lawyer said, hey, you folks just don't get it. The law is the oldest profession. And they said, come on, come on. No earth, no people. How can you talk about law? And he said, hey, where do you think the chaos comes from? <laughs> and isn't that your view? Isn't that your view that lawyers don't bring reconciliation? Lawyers don't bring justice. Lawyers don't bring order. Lawyers don't bring equal protection. What lawyers bring is chaos. And we forget that by and large lawyers, when they are being lawyers, are always serving in a representative capacity. Isn't it so much easier to blame the garbage man and not the garbage? And that's the role that lawyers play as we deal with contemporary issues. So many of the contemporary issues are not being dealt with in the church. Do we really help the poor? Do we really go out there and deal with racial reconciliation? Or do we pay our tax monies to the state? and tell the lawyers to do it? Do we really solve our disputes within the church? Or isn't it true what the statistics tell us that 50% of the people in court today are Christians? It's true. 50% of the people that are filing lawsuits in the, in the United States last year were Christians. They didn't go to one another. So who's worse, the garbage man or the garbage? Look inside. If you're not doing justice with the love of God, each one of you as citizens in this country, the state will grow and grow and grow until all your freedoms, all your religious freedoms are gone. Shouldn't we follow Christ and participate in the needed reformation of society and civil government at all levels? Starting with registering to vote, I was happy to see that. Did you know that 50% of Christians in this country are not registered to vote? And did you know that when Christians do register to vote and vote, they, generally speaking, do not vote, if you will, according to their biblical conscience. They vote along party lines. And so no one worries about the Christian voting bloc in this country because they know we don't know what we're talking about, biblically, socially, or culturally. And so Christians, by and large, are ignored. But starting uh, in, the, in the 1980s, 
uh, various vocations in law and government and so-called justice ministries began to be possible in evangelical Christianity. Not that there weren't people doing it before. In the 19th century in England, there was a lawyer and a government official named Wilberforce. Without him, England would still have their slaves today. And it was the English example, getting rid of their slaves, that emboldened a man named Lincoln, who himself was a lawyer. And most of your founding fathers, before they would claim to be a lawyer, confessed Christ. But in our era, new ministries have, have sprung up. Prison fellowship, uh, which is trying to restore restitutionary justice to the criminal, to the law, the criminal law. The National Right to Life League, that, are, that is trying to work for justice for preborn children and for people who otherwise would be subject to a decision for euthanasia. The Christian Action Council, CLS's own National Center for Law and Religious Freedom, the American Center for Law and Justice, Americans United for Life, uh, Christians uh, in Defense of Evangelism, the Rutherford Institute, whose head, John Whitehead, will be with you on Wednesday, and many other groups. Can legal thought or legal service, including politics, in any way contribute to the Great Commission our Lord has set for all his children? How many of you are interested or ever think that you may run for political office, whether local, state, or federal? How many people have ever thought about that? There's one, two, three, four. Any more? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Let me have a question for you. If God was going to do justice with the love of God, and if God himself is ju the just and the justifier, not you, not me, how would justice get done in an unjust world unless people with the Holy Spirit living in them decided to stand up and be a witness? How else will God get into this republic we call the United States of America and participate? Will it come by lightning bolts? Will it come by neon signs in the sky? At the individual level, can a Christian be an evangelist and still become a social activist, a lawyer or a politician or a government official? <laughs> I don't know about this. Uh, Chuck Colson is trained as a lawyer. He said, I really thank God for Watergate. If it weren't for that, I might be back practicing law. And as you know, those of you, maybe I'm dating myself now, uh, Chuck Colson, the great leader of Prison Fellowship, at one time was a, Har was a lawyer, a Harvard Law School grad, and one of the real great perjurers this country has ever seen on national television. Actually, he obstructed justice. He went j to jail for it. And he was won back for Christ in jail. And it was that winning back that set him on the road that has become Prison Fellowship. Um, his goal is to reform the prison system toward, a biblical toward the biblical goal of restit restitution rather than retribution or deterrence. In his work, Colson relates that he is forever being asked by Christians, are, Christian are Christians prison evangelists or prison reformers? As if there was or could be a difference. In my work as a public interest lawyer and as the former dean of one of the few Christian law schools in the United States, Simon Greenleaf School of Law, I'm often asked how I can be a lawyer and still be a Christian. 
I like Colson's reaction to this stereotypical oxymoron. And an oxymoron is not a dummy that went to Oxford. It's, a, it's something that can't be true at the same time. Two words that can't be true are put together at the same time. Though seemingly innocuous, these questions reveal a devastating schism that has polarized the church since the turn of the century and the conservative Christian community since the early 1970s. About 20 years ago, when these evangelical ministries that I just mentioned began to emerge, that were primarily concerned with social issues, working to right injustices and meet human needs, particularly out of the evangelical camp, resentment soon developed. Fundamentalists charged these so-called justice ministries with abandoning the traditional commitment to evangelize the lost. And these social activists, on the other hand, derided these soul winners on being concerned only with altar calls and notches in their Bible belts. This split is bad enough for the disunity it created amongst evangelicals. But even worse is the way it has obscured the mission of the church. For the church to regain a clear vision for its role in society and to heal the rift between evangelism on the one and social action on the other side, we need to recover a central theme of Scripture, a theme that Christ sounded just four days before they crucified him. Ironically, it centers on one of the words so misused in the current controversy. The word is justice. What would you say about justice? What would you say it is? Did you know that you had an obligation to do it? Did you know even if you weren't a lawyer, you have an obligation to do it? I'm sorry, you can't read this very well. But Solomon wrote of its qualities and its benefits. In Proverbs 4, at verse 18, he said, The path of the just is as the shining light that shines more and more into the perfect day. Are we really in the Christian church to say that there is to be no light in law, there is to be no light in politics. Sorry, we've declared a boycott. Isaiah, God's prophet, warned that evil, interestingly enough, evil is the opposite of justice. Truth is nowhere to be found, said the great law person. Isaiah, remember, he's close to the prime minister. He's doing law every day. He wasn't just hiding in his holy huddle in some suburban church outside of Jerusalem. He was in there doing law. And he said this, Truth is nowhere to be found. Whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. Notice the relationship between truth and justice. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. Hey, this isn't just ancient stuff. Go forward to your own country and realize that your very liberties, your very protections, all of the freedoms that you would enjoy are claimed in our Declaration of Independence to be self-evident... Boy, it's dead out there. Truths! Political presupposition of this country was that there was such a thing as truth. Huh. Imagine! It wasn't a religious thing. This wasn't a religious document. This was a political document. 
designed to bring us together as one people. And there was also another presupposition buried in that declaration. Somebody called a creator God. Imagine that. Whoa! Micah said that. God's prophet. He explained it as a requirement to recognize this God. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Hey, we're not just talking to lawyers here and you know erstwhile politicians. We're talking to all of you. All of you out there in Master's land out there. Uh, to act justly. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Did you catch that word humbly? Did you catch it? You met a humble lawyer lately? Do you think of lawyers as humble? Christian lawyers must be humble. More on why that is in a second. But I heard a funny joke the other day. Alan Simpson, the one I love and whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. There's that word justice again, appearing with the G word, God. Now, how is justice going to go forward in our world if you who have the Holy Spirit, if you who know God, don't understand justice or your obligation to do it? I like this. Benjamin, uh, a Jew actually, uh, British statesman Benjamin Disraeli summed it up. Justice is truth in action. Like that? Justice is truth in action. How many people think they have the truth? <laughs> A lot more hands now. Is it going to be an action in your life? If truth is an action, guess what we have? Justice. Unfortunately, secularization occurred, the Enlightenment occurred. Uh, lawyers forgot about God being the source of law. Deep, deep, dark times. And we now have this definition for justice. The constant and perpetual disposition to render every man his due. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that really help you get up in the morning? We really lost something along the way, didn't we? It's no wonder people are so turned off to law. What's my due and who's my neighbor? Hey, I can't do anything about this anyway. Many of us start, have started to think of justice in terms of, its sec, of that secular definition. Everyone getting his or her due. And this far misses the biblical mark. Many of us in this audience, perhaps myself included, politicize the term. Conservatives gleefully suppose that getting one's due means wrongdoers receive punishment. The crime issue, right? Liberals gleefully assert it means everyone getting an equal share of society's benefits. The welfare state, right? This division is clearly revealed in the current debate between those who supported the war 
in the Gulf and those who opposed it under the slogan, No Blood for Oil. We kind of know the answer to these questions right now, but I remember just before the war, people were asking, was Saddam Hussein an evildoer on a grand scale or just an Islamic Robin Hood? Was our cause just, as President Bush affirmed the night of the war in the Gulf began? Or was it just a self-interested exercise of unnecessary power, as claimed by candidate Perot? And Haiti, wasn't that just a replay of those same arguments? How is it just to protect the Kuwaitis or the Haitians, but let the, the Croatian people and the Bosnian people of Sarajevo die at the hands of their Serbian oppressors. Hey, we're starting to sound like we're missionaries now. Was it justice? What is justice, excuse me, and how is it done in an unjust world? We pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Maybe even did this this morning. I don't know, before I came in. And to this republic for which it stands, interestingly enough, one people again, remember? One nation under God, there's the G word, with liberty, the topic for this week, and justice for all. There's the J word. It always shows up. Doggone, it's always there. There's that word again. And what about this one nation under God? What does our nation have to do with justice or God today anyway? As Christians, can we any longer afford to ignore these questions? or think somehow someone else will somehow do something about it for us. Lincoln didn't. He stated the answer to these questions and publicly expressed himself on justice and its divine source in his second inaugural address. Important history for Christians. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the light. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds. Does this nation have wounds right now, people? Yeah, we got wounds. To care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan. Our families orphaned and widowed. Our families in trouble today. Did you know... We get 35 calls a day at the Christian Legal Society for help. A day. 60% of those calls, which by and large come from at least someone that's a Christian, have to do with a breakup of the family, custody, guardianship, dependency proceedings, wife abuse. 60% of our calls. Hey, we still got widows. We still got orphans. To do, and then to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. What do God's people have to do with justice? Isn't that something we leave to politicians, the judges and the lawyers? But why do so many of us today ask ourselves, we're beginning to doubt law itself. We're beginning to doubt the rule of law itself. That's a very dangerous thing. And the reason you're beginning to doubt the rule of law yourself is because you don't believe it's meeting a standard. 
You can have any kind of rule of law you want, but if it doesn't meet a true standard, what's the purpose of it? And we're beginning to doubt that it's meeting the standard of justice, the biblical standard of justice. And when any society begins to doubt the rule of law, anarchy is just on the other side of that doubt. And a state will rise to control that anarchy. Believe me. And that state will not be able to abide certain freedoms. And usually the first one to go in a state that has to grow to put down that kind of violence is the freedom of conscience, the freedom of liberty itself. So we ignore justice at our peril, brothers and sisters at Master's College. We ignore it at our peril. And we're going to be just like that guy preaching in the, uh, preaching in the prison, although our prisons may be golden. The question reminds me of the story of a pastor and a recent convert walking along a riverbank in a country where missionaries are sent. A pastor, uh, as they were walking along this river, they saw a body floating down the river. And they reached in and they pulled her out, administered first aid, sent her on her way, and the pastor looked at the recent convert and said, Isn't it great that our faith was sufficient to give us the strength and ability to aid that person during a time of distress. His companion agreed with all the self-satisfaction that his Christianity could muster. The next day, the same two were walking along the same riverbank and again noticed that there was another body floating down the river. Again, they reached in and pulled the person out. And this person needed more than first aid, so they took him to the hospital built with money sent by the congregation in the United States. Thankfully, the person was treated and released, and the pastor turned to the recent convert and said, Isn't it great that our faith and our dollars helped us be here during a time of need in your country? Yes, agreed, the now ever more confident recent convert. And the next day, the same two, walking along the same riverbank, found themselves in the same situation, but this time the person was much more severely injured as they pulled them from the river, almost dead, I think. And there was a lengthy hospitalization and permanent disability. And as they left the hospital after visiting the patient, the pastor once again said, isn't it great that our faith allows us to comfort such people at times such as this, at times of such loss? But this time, the recent convert, with a certain steely look in her eye, looked at the pastor and commented, maybe our faith should guide us to the top of the river so we can stop whatever it is that is causing the bodies to float down. If there were a gate at the top of that river and the prophet Amos stood near it, he would tell us that it is God's will that we believers do our best to establish justice at that gate. Amos exhorted God's people, seek good not evil, that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. The challenge to do justice with the love of God, 
not just talk about it. Also reminds me of the cartoon I recently saw in a religious publication. There was a young Christian Bible student fervently praying for God's will in his life, pledging his dedication over and over again. And then a divine voice from heaven says to him, Do justice, help the needy, feed the hungry, protect the oppressed, even to the least of these. (laughs) And the sheepish young Christian responded, "Uh, Just testing, Lord. I was just... uh, Just testing. And God's response, me too. Just testing. Justice in your life is a test. It'll teach you what you're really made of inside. Would you pass the test? Have you thought about justice lately? By God's grace, Have you done any? I'll close with a story. I remember the words spoken to me in anger. You're not one of those Christian lawyers, are you? I would rather spend an eternity in hell than a day in heaven with the likes of you. The scene was a parking lot. The day was a day that I had just served an injunction on the doctor who was about to perform an abortion on that man's daughter. The daughter had been coerced to have an abortion. And her unmarried boyfriend had come to us and said, She wants to have the baby. She's being forced to have this abortion against her will. Time does not permit me to tell you all of the details, but I will tell you this. I turned to the father and I said, I know know how you feel. If I was a dad, I'd feel the same way you do. But in time, you will thank me. In time, you will understand what has happened today. And so time passed. And today that little girl sits in his lap and he loves her. Her name is Christina. Annika Christine. It was an interesting thing that happened. The the, uh, young boy and young girl who had the baby out of wedlock. I asked the the, uh, young man, I said, uh, did you ever pray before? before we went to get this injunction, that is. And he said, uh, not till last night. I said, what did you pray? He said, dear God, save my baby. Pretty great God, huh? Yeah. Like God, boy, I can't believe it. And I asked the young gal, I said, why did you tell me when I, I broke into the surgical ward with the, uh, with the warrant and the injunction? Why did you tell me that you wanted to have the baby and you wanted to be saved from the abortion? And she said, well, just the summer before, a gal in Campus Crusade for Christ had shared her faith with me. 
I didn't really become a Christian then. I became a Christian on the table. I prayed God to save this baby. And so we had the two young Christian converts over to our house for dinner one night. And we got this letter delivered to us by the young girl who had had the baby. It was a letter that was delivered to her house the night she was on the table awaiting that abortion. It was delivered by a woman from Colorado. And this is what the letter said. Dear Andrea, you don't know me, but 17 years ago today, I had a very difficult decision to make. And I am so glad that I decided to have you and your twin sister, Michelle. I know now that it was the right thing to do to put you up for abortion, uh, for adoption, excuse me. I'm so glad I didn't have the abortion. I live in Colorado now. I'm married. I have two children of my own. If you ever want to see me, just call. Love, Mom. Justice is evangelism. Justice is discipleship. There is no schizophrenia here, my brothers and sisters. It's okay to do justice with the love of God. Won't you pray with me now that the Christian Legal Society and perhaps some of you who go to law school and join us in law school will be able to reach an unreached people group called the American Legal Profession. There are probably 30,000 lawyers who know Christ in this country and about 830,000 who don't. There are 50% of our Fortune 500 presidents. There are 70% of our jurists. There are almost all of our jurists and most of this nation's leaders have a law degree. How, how sad that we would reach a group in the upper reaches of the Amazon, that we would reach the people in Albania, and we would forget to reach the unsaved who do not know Christ in the legal profession. A great unreached people group. Will you join me in prayer for them? And will you join me in prayer for yourselves? That if you've learned one thing today, if you've learned one thing, it is doing justice, doing justice with the love of God. Say it one more time now. It's okay. And dear sisters and brothers and masters, if you don't do it, who will? Father God, we thank you for this time. And I pray that doing justice with the love of God will have gone deep into the bone of the student body. That they will not forget the poor. They will not forget the ministry of reconciliation. They will not forget their duty to stand for what is right as God gives them the light to see what is right. I pray for those that have a calling, a vocho deo, 
in law, that they would listen to God. And despite their reservations, Father God, I pray that if you are calling them, that they would know that you are calling them and that they would go to law school. That they would, for those that want to be politicians, Father God, that they would know that they must do so with great humility and great, and great sense of who the source of law is, you. But that they would go ahead and do it. And I pray that when I come back here, Father God, by your grace, maybe 20 years from now, there will be great lawyers and jurists, statesmen and stateswomen, who call their alma mater the Master's College. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.